Hello and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. I'm George Bradley, architect and director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. And every fortnight, I talk to a different architect from around the world to discuss an inspiring house that they have designed. In this episode, I am joined by Alicia Casals, one of the co-founders of Nomo Studio. We talk about their project, Villa Patio, located on the Spanish island of Menorca. It is a private residence that is very sculptural in form. The entire villa appears to be carved out of a block of white stone. The design concept is underlined by complex geometrical rules revolving around a pentagon. But don't worry, this one looks nothing like the one in Washington. I loved talking with Alicia and finding out about how the studio used geometry to respond to the orientation of the site by making the most of good views, shielding the bad ones from view and providing protection from the strong Balearic winds. The result of their approach is a beautiful courtyard villa with amazing views of the Mediterranean. If you'd like to find out more about Nomo Studio and their project Villa Patio, you can find more information on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello, Alicia. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Hi, George. Thank you for having me. Um, So we're going to be talking um, about uh, Villa Patio, one of your latest projects that you completed in Menorca. Um, And obviously finding out a bit about you and about um, Nomo Studio as well. And interestingly, your your company is based, or your location is between Barcelona and Stockholm, um, which is two very glamorous locations and two very different locations as well. Could you maybe tell me a little bit about um, the reasoning behind that? Sure. So we actually this year expanded to Madrid. So now we're based in Madrid, Barcelona and Stockholm. Yeah. <laughs> and mainly the reason for that is that uh, Carl, my partner, is uh, Swedish and I myself am from Spain. Mm-hmm. So most of our projects are located in these two countries. And actually, it's a really interesting combination because uh, we operate really differently in both countries. Um, Spain is actually much more traditional, custom-made, um, craftsman-oriented way of building. And mm-hmm. instead, in Sweden, it's probably due to labor being so expensive. Um, they work much more with prefabrication, wooden construction. Um, there's a very big sensibility to integrating in the context and everything is really different, even the way you deal with the municipality. So it it gives us a, a very good source of learning <laughs> and mm. variety. And it, yeah. Well, it really results in a variety in the portfolio of your work as well. I mean, just just focus. I mean, you do all kinds of work, but just focusing on the houses, there's there's very different types of architecture on there, very different types of climates that they're dealing with. Absolutely. I mean, um, the the role of an architect in Spain is also really different from from Sweden. In in Spain, we we have a very big role in the face of construction. So I'm very involved even in the construction process and all this part. And also, we like calculate our own structures, our own installations. Instead, in in Sweden, it's more of the role of a designer, and you're more like coordinating the different engineers mm-hmm. and so on so that's also an interesting different way of working 
Is that quite challenging in terms of working in these kind of cross disciplines? Does it does it sometimes end in sort of feeling like there's two halves to the company? It does feel a bit like that in the sense that probably I'm more involved in the Spanish projects and Carl is more involved in the Swedish ones. Mm -hmm. And having said that, we also do a lot of uh, competitions um, in different countries and we would love to expand. One of the things that we took over from our previous offices is that we keep a real international uh, mix of people in the office. So um, it kind of disappears the Swedish Spanish thing because we have people from Bulgaria, Chile, Poland currently. So it's, uh, it's kind of a fun atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to actually go through a roll call of um, some of the places that both you and Carl worked at before setting up the studio, because it's quite a list. I've got BIG, Kengo Kuma, OMA, MVRDV and UN Studio. I mean, that's, um, you're hitting a lot of the heavyweights of late 20th century, early 21st um architects what's the story behind you two to meeting and setting up the practice then well we both met in in switzerland when we were um, finishing our degree there and i think we have both had an interest in like jumping between offices and kind of uh, learning as much as you could in like six months and jumping to the next and then maybe like one year and in that sense i think um we learned a lot during those years and it kind of also explains a little bit the kind of background we have in, in the way we design. I think we were used to very, very large um, scale projects that are very often iconic, like this office mm -hmm. is often produced like objects and cities or in other contexts. And in that sense, I think we started a little bit coming from that background and have slowly shifted into a different direction. But um, it definitely reads a little bit in our early projects, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it definitely reads in, in Villa Patio as well. There is something of the iconic, maybe, on, but on a, on a domestic scale, in a domestic setting. I mean, I really like there's a line that you have on your company website that's it's we believe in design as a powerful tool for creating extraordinary spatial qualities. Um, I wonder if you could just expand a little bit on, on what you mean by that. Cause I think in, in knowing these practices, I can see, definitely see an influence sort of touching on that and also then knowing your work as well. So it's funny. You mentioned, uh, Villa Pati is one of our latest, uh, completed projects. Funny enough, it's one of our, it's, the first project we did in our office and the office oh, really? has been running for <laughs> seven years now. <laughs> so that shows how slow architecture is. <laughs> hey, I'm going to, I'm going to blame you. It says under construction on your website. I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so totally so this is, well, that's interesting. So this is one of the, this is one of the early ones. So that's, um, that is really interesting then because I'd say this one is kind of more iconic in the way you've played with form and things compared to maybe some of the other villas that then come exactly. after exactly yeah okay i had that the wrong way around then Interesting. and also like um i would say a lot of the villas we're working on now are still not published and mm -hmm. i would say that we have had like a bit of a journey um coming from this more formalistic um way of working and very conceptual very geometric and driven and also a bit Due to conditions like we were lucky enough to have this uh, three house commission where 
the, the, the brief was that they were meant to be iconic and eye-catching because they were supposed to promote the area. So it was both because of our way of working, but also a bit the brief was asking mm -hmm. for that. And we have slowly moved into projects that have had more restrictions around them because uh, it's true, these houses have had like nothing around them. It was an empty plot, large plots. You could really do a lot of geometric experimenting in the area. And mm -hmm. right now, when you find yourself in more constrained situations, we are tending to work more with materials, construction details, and um, maybe less formalistic uh, gestures. I would anyway say that there is like a line that still comes from our background is still there. And Yeah. And the formalistic, is that, are there any sort of particular, you know, if you're picking out any of those studios that you had worked for before, was there, were there any really kind of standout key influences that have inspired your work? Yeah, so I was thinking about it and I think that um, in Bati House, definitely my, I had been working in UN Studio recently and I'm pretty sure that that uh, was a big influence. We were, we were working with references um, from product design rather than uh, looking at different architecture yeah. offices or it was a lot like nature references, object references. And I think in that sense, um, you can read it both in Patio House and also in Bridge House and in Catwalk, which were the three villas that were done at the same time, that they are very much into that geometric experimentation. Mm -hmm. at, at the time, I was also really looking into, I don't know if you know the Spanish offices, uh, Nieto Sobejano, and also Mancilla Antunion, and I think that kind of reads also. Yeah. I, no, I don't know them, but I, I will be looking them up afterwards, definitely. Um, so what, what's the story here? You both working in bigger practices, both working on big, probably quite iconic schemes. What? How did it happen that you then started gaining the trust of people to sort of trust you to design their villas kind of from, from the get-go. How did, how did it all start? Well, it started really with this, these three houses that um, they wanted to do something a bit like to set up a standard in the area because this is a new urbanization which was at the time uh, very empty. Slowly houses have been like uh, building in the area, but Mm, it was a little bit like someone saw the house and they, they liked them and then their friend invited us to do it. So really like through having a good experience with us as uh, architects, which is sometimes not so easy, the relationship between client and uh, an architect. And I think that was how we slowly gained uh, the trust to do this um, villas, which as you have seen, we have a lot of villas in the Balearic Island actually yeah. and slowly well expanding. Yeah. And what was the first one then? The first one were these three houses, um, Villa oh, Patio, so Catwalk and um, Bridge House. Those were it, built simultaneously. And so this is all for one client then? Yes, they were three different investors, but basically their interest was the same, which was to promote this area because they are landowners in the area. And it's yeah. true that recent, like in the maybe past two years, through publication of houses and so on, we have got clients that just reaching out to us from different areas because mm -hmm. they have seen our work on internet or something, which is really amazing, actually. 
Yes, I hadn't appreciated that this is sort of a development where there's the three villas then in a row. Because on the site plan, you can see there's two houses either side that look kind of fairly geometric in form. Um, So they're designed by you as well, um, all on one site. Can you maybe tell me a little bit about the site? I mean, the views look spectacular. Uh, it's quite steep landscape, but where where are we? We're on the island of Menorca. What, what's it like in this location? So Menorca is like uh, it's like the big unknown of the Balearic Islands. Everyone has heard about Mallorca and Ibiza, um, mm-hmm. but Menorca is like a small, very green, and very beautiful island. It's it's more like a calm destination for families and uh, local people, and this this. Areas um, located in the northeast of the island, which is uh, Menorca in general is a really windy island, but especially in the north. Yeah. Uh, the good part is it's also more wild coast, less uh, tourists, and it's kind of a virgin area there. However, there was one of the big constraints uh, that was driving the the project, which was that we had a really high hotel built <laughs> one of those uh, disasters that Spain did in the 60s and 70s yeah. and basically the whole pentagon shape and rotating the windows and everything was guided to avoid the view um, of that hotel yeah. and that was in a way this pentagon was a constraint but also a really big help because it helped us um, rotate in, in a way the the views yeah yeah I'd, I'd seen you'd written somewhere else about this big hotel defining <laughs> kind of how you did the views and it made it reminded me of about two years ago I was, we were looking for a, a holiday villa to rent and it's with my parents and it, I think it was Menorca and I remember them finding one and there are all these views looking to the coast it's like this is beautiful it's amazing da, da, da. and then I checked it out on on Google Earth and my parents kind of not you know not sort of savvy with that kind of stuff and I kind of looked on this video and panned round. And if you looked the other way, the whole villa, there was this, again, a 10-story hotel. It was just overlooking the whole villa. I was like, we can't stay here. It would be horrible. Um, so that is clearly an, an issue in some of these sort of beauty spots and, and nice yeah. areas. But So that's one of the key things that you were kind of working against then as a, exactly. as a challenge here. Exactly. And you mentioned, so the Pentagon, that's, that's the shape, that's the form that you um, took the building. I've seen you describe it as well as um, using isotropic geometry on on the villa. I have to confess, I I had to Google isotropic geometry <laughs> before we before we did this interview, and Wikipedia gives a very long description of it. I still didn't understand um, what it is, so hopefully you can help me out here. <laughs> so um, isotropic means that. Um, the, like if you measure the shape from different mm, directions, it has the same value. So basically, for example, the sides of the pentagon are all equally uh, long or the radius of the pentagon, since it can be inscribed into a circle, are equally long. So it's like starting from a very neutral, um, non-directional uh, shape which we kind of liked as a starting point. And then we started introducing um, the square because the body is also like a perfect square and creating tangencies and working with those uh, geometric rules. And in fact, what binds the three houses together is that the three of them are created 
only based on squares and pentagons. Right. So this, so the pentagon forms the kind of main plan of the building. But then you've, if you looked at, when you look at the form in plan, you can see this pentagon shape. When you look at the form, because you've eaten away so many parts of it, it completely breaks down. You you wouldn't recognise it. What's were you placing a limitation on yourself then of having this repeating distance that had to be the same? Was that was that a kind of response to not having limitations and challenges on the site in a sense? We you devising your own rules here. I think you absolutely um, said it right there. Like, I think that the fact that there was no limitations in, in the plot, we had to find some kind of guideline, something mm-hmm. to help us out. And it turned out to, at some points, of course, you were being so straight with that rule that you were almost like struggling with it. But I think all in all, it helps somehow read that things belong to each other and there is some kind of uh, consistent language because as you said you don't read the pentagon or the square anymore Um, Mm and it's completely breaking down into um, shapes that are always four-sided and have different heights and you don't perceive that but for us it was a way of working with it and having some kind of starting point and maybe for somebody that isn't an architect they probably wouldn't understand why you'd do that. I mean, I've been there as well and and done that project. You set a you set some kind of rule for yourself, and then that's your challenge, and you have to work to it. Somebody else might look at that and say, "Well, why you can make a compromise? Why do you have to stick to that?" Um, what what would be your answer to that? Yeah. So I think um, even if it feels like it's not going to be readable in some way it will be readable i i do think that is the case like if from the interior and from the exterior the angles are always like either 90 degrees or 72 degrees so there's some kind of like in the end it just reads like somehow even when you say you don't read that pentagon i think you do and Mm -hmm. also i would say that um there is some kind of like internal agenda of investigating and exploring, researching that path of um, how geometry can help you. There's some kind of like mathematical rule <laughs> that I mm. guess architects, we just uh, like that. I don't know. And did you have, so the client here was a developer, is that right? It wouldn't, it wasn't the owner or the end user of the house. Mm-hmm. Did you have points where you were kind of developing this concept and developing designs where the client would be saying, well, actually, I want the living room to be bigger, um, for example, and that contradicted with these rules that you'd set. Was was it a challenge to kind of impose these rules and then have the compromises that, that came with them? So I guess that one of the reasons why we could do this in this project is precisely because we had a lot of freedom in that sense. Mm-hmm. We did have a brief that was like five bedrooms and a, a closed kitchen, a living room, a bit based on what they thought the market was asking for. But of course, having not having a final client gives you a freedom in the sense that they don't care so much whether um, about small details. And also, I have to say that our client was in a way willing to ch- take that risk of believing in us and saying, okay, you guys can do something um, special. And um, there were some red lines, obviously, but it was um, quite free. So I think that, yes, if we would have had a final client, I wonder if we would have managed to 
get along with such a strict rule. Also, being a pentagon that it's not a square, maybe more people are more used to those kind of shapes. But definitely, that was a an extra freedom we had. And did you have? So you you had a very kind of practical brief in terms of numbers of rooms and accommodation. Was there anything that you added to that through the design process that that you suggested or said? Well, actually, we think this is also important. Well, um, we did add the garage, but that was something the client asked for us, and it's a separate volume. But I would say that one of the things we actually didn't do in this uh, house that was in the brief is we didn't do a covered terrace as such. Instead, we substituted it with the patio. Um, this is the house that is highest up in the hill. So mm-hmm. it's the one that is most exposed to the wind. And it's also the, the views to the sea are facing north, where which is also the, the strongest wind uh, direction. So we kind of thought that we had to create a backside with mm-hmm. the with the solarium and pool area and the outer area where you could be even when it was very windy, but still have this transparency through the house. So we could still from the back see the sea. And that is this um, this volume, which is actually the dining and is glazed on both sides and can be completely opened and becomes almost like a passing through the back and the front of the house. Mm-hmm. And that was a bit... Um, the the climate rules that were um, challenging in this plot and that's interesting because i think in in other hands a house like this would uh, typically would be a simple block right let's say a rectangle and then the outside part would be next to that and there'd be a terrace covering it and that would have all the views so you've done the complete opposite here you've wrapped the building around or or you've carved a courtyard out of the heart of the building and the courtyard, the building is providing the shelter. You Effectively, you're saying you don't need a cover here because the building is sheltering you from the sun and the wind. That's quite different, isn't it, for houses of this typology? Because the house has references to traditional architecture of the island in terms of how it looks. And um, But in terms of form, is that anything that is kind of seen in traditional architecture in this area of having internal courtyards? Or is that very different? Yes, definitely. I, I think the the internal courtyard is a typology we have investigated throughout um, all these years. And we really love how it works because it's it's very Mediterranean. It creates like shadows and sun and, and it, it also gives a lot of light to the house because, of course, um, it's a very deep shape the pentagon per se so we had to somehow bring light to the core of it and we think also in this context where wind is actually an issue it's the perfect uh, typology to have this like other space where you can protect yourself uh, on those days where it becomes kind of uncomfortable otherwise Mm -hmm. so yes it's interesting then. There's a lot of sort of, you could almost say, different sets of rules that are then defining this actually very complex shape in terms of the views that you do want to see of the sea, the views that you don't want to see of the hotel, uh, the wind that you want to be sheltered from, and the, the sun as well, but that obviously contradicts with you still want to gain view. Um, and yeah, I can see that all in this the form of this building. It's very, very clever. Um, I'm going to 
give a very kind of simple description of my sort of view of the plan if we're kind of on audio i definitely suggest people have a look at this i'll, I'll have it on the website um but the, yeah the main form of the building is is a pentagon shape so five sides and then you've taken a little square out of not right in the center but kind of almost in the center has been cut out but in plan it looks like the building looks a little bit like a crab it's kind of got this it's kind of wrapping around something or maybe like a, a croissant or some, something like that. But it's in plan, it's actually eating another another pentagon shape. So you've got a pentagon patio and swimming pool. And it looks like the crab's basically taking a bite out of it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And that's so that's where that pentagon and that courtyard link up. That's the view out to the sea and that's the view north. So you're kind of letting light right into the heart of the building, right? And then so it results in very shallow planned spaces you've got a lot of cross ventilation as well so is that very important here in terms of dealing with the heat and the energy use of the building in this climate yes definitely um i think that what works very well in this climate is um to create a lot of flexibility when it comes to for example sun shading ventilation because the truth is, everybody thinks Spain is like extremely hot climate, but we also have kind of rough winters. So, especially in Menorca, you could have like different, throughout the year, it could be very cold and also very hot. So giving that flexibility of opening windows that can be completely sheltered, but also like opening and creating almost an outdoor indoor space or having uh, sun shadings that are sliding, depending on the moment of the day, you can just like move them around. It's in a way not a, a domotic house or anything like that, but it does allow for a lot of flexibility to adapt to the climate of that uh, moment. We said that on windy days, the wind is pretty unbearable, but on hot days, mm -hmm. to be honest, to leave the two windows open and get some breeze is extremely pleasant. And another mm -hmm. interesting thing is that you described it now very well. It's actually not a patio. We call it patio, but if we are strict about it, it's an open patio on one corner. So mm. it's more of a like bite into the house that actually flows outside into the swimming pool area. And that mm -hmm. also allows for a stronger ventilation in that direction. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a better name though, patio house. I mean, you couldn't call it <laughs> croissant house or... <laughs> crab eating pentagon house <laughs> <laughs> the um that so the entrance of the building is on the other side which is the much more closed side there but there are a lot smaller windows on this side and again in plan playing with geometry you've got a square that forms the kind of courtyard or the driveway of the house and that square kind of takes a big chunk out of the side of the the building so there's a kind of wedge and a very discreet looking um front door so what's What's this side of the building facing and, and why, is it, why is it so much more closed and discreet? So we really wanted to translate uh, into the facade the, the, the conditions that were surrounding the house, which is there's a clear sea view, which is the one you really want to catch. And the backside is much more of a... Um, it's the bedroom area and it's also like there's no view that is really maybe worth catching in that um, strong mm -hmm. way. So we really try to create a very strong contrast between those two facades. Um, in the back, the windows are much smaller. Again, we're using the square just out of coherence. And also we try to use a 
rougher finishing for the back um, and in the front we are using this like very sharp edges to frame the windows and very large windows so it was all about creating a contrast between the back and the front I also think that the experience of how you enter the house is interesting because you enter from the back and you you can really not read what's going inside at all. It's a very, mm. very opaque house. And when you enter, you see it's actually extremely bright, extremely open. So we like that moment of opening and like seeing and how different it is. No? Yeah, I, I like how you described the, the, the there's the contrast between the two sides of this building. You said about it being very sharp, the, the little square windows and just sharp, simple cutouts. It's a very sculptural building, isn't it? It's just all white and then forms carved out of it. But you mentioned about texture, and I think that's a really interesting part of this project and the kind of subtleties that will only really be picked up visiting the house. Um, but can you tell me a little bit more about how you've used the texture with the render and how you've contrasted texture and smooth and where you've mm. used it? To be honest, it didn't end up as contrasted as we wanted it to be because our initial idea was to project concrete on the whole backside so it would get this mm -hmm. extremely rough um, finishing and in the the windows to the back are also like flush to the outside so creating even within the windows and the texture this contrast between something very flat and something very rough and in the front side that was a little bit more how it was meant to be. We have this very, very sharp triangular edges, which are done um, in a super smooth uh, rendering. And that was um, how, how we wanted it to read. And I'm glad that it still reads a little bit, even if it wasn't as much as we were hoping for, but yeah. What happened there then? Where it's, um, why, why couldn't you have this as rough as you wanted it? So the thing is, um, our client being the builder at the same time <laughs> yeah. um, gave a bit of uh, challenges in the sense that, of course, uh, he knows very well the business and he knows um, how he's used to work. And of course, he's uh, very aware of the costs of one mm -hmm. going one way or another. So we did have some red lines due to cost limitations i would say rather than anything else that mm -hmm. was like um, no on the other hand he did allow us uh, to do the marble floor <laughs> yeah <laughs> which uh, initially it was meant as a concrete floor and somehow i'm very glad that we convinced him of doing this continuous indoor outdoor uh, marble floor it's like not polished it's uh, it's a rather rough finishing of it but how it bounces the light from the outside is incredible. Like it yeah. really brightens up the space enormously. And um, yeah, I mean, just with the, the concrete and sensing, there's a little sort of element of unfulfilled um, concept here on, on this villa. But what's quite interesting is then ones that you've done later have actually introduced a, a lot more texture and some of the other as you've done there is a lot more of this contrast with the smooth white and then rougher kind of stone or concrete materials um so you were able to kind of explore that further then as these as you've been getting more commissions for for beautiful houses like these <laughs> um but on the on the other side of the building you've then there are a lot bigger openings in this white form and where you then have the windows the walls kind of angle back and slope 
inwards to, to face the glass. And you've also played with texture there, is that right? Yes, exactly. Um, those frames are like really smooth and they are supposed to be like extremely sharp. And where those frames finish is where this uh, rendered texture starts, the bumpy one. Mm -hmm. um, we also played with the texture, of course, of the shutters. In the end, this deploye creates another kind of texture in the, in the metal finishing. Um, it's true that because we were a little bit limited in the sense of uh, materiality in these three houses, we were, mm -hmm. it, it was one of the conditions that they had to be white and they had to be uh, rendered finishings. We were sticking very strongly to the concept of the shape to kind of, as you said, create something sculptural and interesting because we were limited in the other direction. And who, who's setting that limit? The clients. Uh, so the clients, they, they wanted the, all these buildings to be white. Why, is, why did they want that? Is that a reference, again, to the sort of traditional, or pr the promotion maybe of, of, of Menorca? Yeah, I mean, it's um, Menorca houses and also, of course, Ibiza houses, maybe you've heard about. They are always these very white um, plaster finishings, uh, whitewashed walls. So I think they wanted to keep that kind of safe uh, direction in that sense. Um, on the other hand, they were very brave <laughs> in the mm -hmm. formal finishing. So I think it was a good balance all in all. Maybe it would have been too much to do both things <laughs> at the same time. And if that limitation wasn't there, what would you have done something else, do you think? Yes, we <laughs> we actually really wanted to do a black house. And yeah. of course, they were like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of stuck to the white. <laughs> and why, why would you have wanted to do black? Would that have, is there a benefit to that from a climatic point of view in terms of... No, I think I think we liked um, how it how a darker color would have integrated so much into the trees. This very mm -hmm. dark and um, green that they have of the pine trees. Um, it's true that most of the houses in Menorca, traditional houses, are uh, completely whitewashed, or they do have some other colors. For example, mm -hmm. uh, the turquoise color of the shutters is actually also very traditional color in Menorca. They are using a lot uh, baby blue and deep green. Mm -hmm. And we kind of combine those two to give it a bit of more of a contemporary look. And that was a bit also how we chose the, the turquoise in this case. Yeah, and they're really nice, the shutters. So they obviously, from a, if it's a holiday place, it's good for security, but also must be great for, um, for thermal mass, as in if to not overheat the building and close them sometimes but they do they're the one thing that give a kind of sharp contrast or a break to the to the whiteness of, of the building um, but it's interesting you say about the black because i do think i mean there's obviously good reason of why this typology works in this location and obviously from a heat point of view it's reflecting a lot of that heat but equally i imagine you must need to wear sunglasses when you're <laughs> um, around this house and um, I, I'd love the idea of one that's all black where you may you know if you're on holiday you, you actually can give your eyes a rest and um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean is that the case does it feel like that in these in these homes they are quite bright yes <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to say that in the end all this um, limitations that we have had from clients not only in this houses but also like for example Stonehouse 
and how we struggled in the beginning not wanting to use stone because we thought it was like going to end up being like a very traditional looking house mm -hmm. and we really were like struggling with that thought in the end where you're challenged with something like that it has turned out to be a benefit in the long run because we get contacted by people who are just in love with the whiteness of those houses just in love with the stone of uh, the other house and It's part of the game, no, to actually deal with some kind of uh, restrictions and um, limitations. Yes. No. Well, you, you've been setting your own restrictions geometrically as well, so it's only fair that someone else sets you some material <laughs> restrictions. So in terms of the, going back to the form of, of the building, so we've there's a very clear form in plan, but then when you look at the building, it's, it's less clear because you've eaten away at things. And, and one of those things is by the way you've sloped back walls to meet the glass and you've changed the textures. But also the heights are all um, very different. What was guiding, did you have some, are there some rules that are sort of guiding what you've done here with heights? So a little bit, Like the geometric process was we started from a pentagon where we had inscribed a square and those tank, the, the lines that were tangent to the square and were the ones that were defining the different shapes and plan, which we would extrude to different heights and trying to not be able to read what was single story and what was uh, two stories inside from the outside. So in the end, in the back of the, of the house, we have two stories. And in the front, what we have is the living room, which has like three to four and a half meters clear height to kind of disguise this, um, the fact that there is only one story in the front and two in the back and read it more like a, like a volume that works in, in steppings. And what we did afterwards is each of these volumes were cut in this one direction sloping roofs. And of course, we had some challenges when it came to the structure and the construction of these um, tangencies, because what it implied is that we have beams that are basically duplicated and, and cutting each other in like almost like a scissor diagonal shape. And that was, of course, a bit of a challenge and probably an overcost um, compared to having done it in a different way. But um, for us, as I said, it was really, really important to stick to those rules in this case, because um, that was a bit like where we felt we were still free um, mm -hmm. in, in designing. And what what is the structure then here? Because that is kind of a mysterious element this building doesn't really show how it's how it's been built um how, how has it been built so when it comes to um the vertical structure it's quite simple it's uh, bearing walls it's the most common way and cheapest way of building in in that area and it's just like concrete prefabricated blocks mm -hmm. and Where it, where it gets a little bit more tricky is in the meetings between all those different inclinations where we had to use um, concrete beams that are mm, a little bit complex in their shape, I would say. 
However, mm. um, the 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 elements are rather simple, and the the structural materials are the most common in the area. So we didn't do any kind of weird um, structural choices there, and yeah, and um, sorry. So was there anything with the um with the structure? Was there anything that changed in the design for, to suit the structure and the buildability, or was it more the other way around that the structure just, however it was built, just had to adapt to these forms that you designed? More the second one. We we were like really struggling with the structure engineers. We just wanted to create that whatever it took. Of yeah. course, um, it didn't become anything crazy. It's just that, of course, those beams are are pretty complex in shape. Yeah. But um, that was about it. Uh, but we also, even if the structure is kind of complex, we didn't want to show it in the facade. It didn't. Yeah. We didn't want to make like a, a statement about it. It was rather. It, it, we wanted it to look like gracefully happening without um, a bit effortless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, um, in terms of the, I mean, was. What I'm curious about with this design is, was there, were there other kind of crazy solutions that you had for this? Was it always a pentagon? Did it follow a very simple kind of linear path of development as a concept? Um, or were there other things along along the way that happened? So um, the truth is that it happens to us a lot that um, the initial idea is the one we end up <laughs> sticking to. So yeah. we did, of course, um, start trying different things because sometimes it, it feels almost wrong or you feel almost guilty of of liking your first idea. It feels like, no, I need to take my time to investigate other directions. And we did mm -hmm. a lot of physical models at the time of different geometric shapes and options. But I have to say that this was the first idea that we had and the one we uh, finally went for. What What was that first idea? Was it... Was it straight away Pentagon carve out a courtyard in the middle? It was to work with pentagons and squares. I would say those two shapes we we kind of wanted to work with, and I think that bridge houses for which is next door um, mm -hmm. is a set of small pentagons and squares combined with each other. And here we wanted to, using the same geometric shapes, but do something that was more like the process of carving and creating porosity and kind of manipulating this uh, mm. pentagon until it disappears, as mm. as you were saying. In the end, it's hard to even read it if you don't if you don't see a plan. Mm -hmm. And then, um, just a very practical question here, but do you, does this have to be insulated, this building? Does, in this kind of climate, is that is that required? Yes, um, we have quite thick insulation, both in roof and walls, and we are, we are trying to convince our clients that that is always a worthwhile investment. Of course, also the rules in Spain have changed a lot in the last 10 years. We used to have a very poor quality of... Uh, constructions and nowadays I think that the standard has raised enormously. It's not only insulation, it's also like the windows, the glazing and 
everything is taken into account and also of course like passive uh, ways of protecting from solar gains which are um, the shutters we were talking about actually when the shutters are closed you still have a lot of light inside the house but it's uh, light not direct sun which avoids um, this heat gains and then of course we have uh, some active measures such as uh, the use of aerothermia as we call it in Spain which is a heat exchanger it's an alternative to solar panels it's accepted uh, almost in every municipality in Spain is a substitute. And what it does is like when you have um, air conditioning, which is something that you almost always need in summer houses, and mm -hmm. um, it creates um, the energy it creates producing this uh, warm or cold air it uses for heating up water. So that's how you kind of um, save some energy. So you have an air conditioning unit that is consuming power but is also generating heat and that heat's adapted for that so it's the hot water that you're kind of saving in terms of the energy exactly hot yeah. water which in this case is only used for um showering and so on but of course if you would have some hot water and um, heating system it could also be used for that and in this house is air conditioning used much because i mean it does you, you mentioned about the breezes and the design has very kind of short uh, narrow rooms with cross ventilation do you think it's it's actually used that much here or do you think you've circumnavigated that somewhat i'm i'm hoping not <laughs> we actually very often even tell our clients that we could take the the decision of not putting ac because i think that a well-designed house in this area could actually manage to not need um air conditioning mm. um However, it's true that in this case, it was a decision because just sales wise, like it's better for selling. People want to have AC when they have a summer house. So it was almost more a commercial strategy rather than a need, I would say. It's expectation, isn't it? And not wanted to be too different, I suppose. So, th so was this house sold then or is it, is it a rental? Um, this house uh, was sold. Do you, do you know anything about the the people that bought it or any feedback from them of, of living in the place? No, not really. <laughs> All mysterious. They hide behind the mysterious front facades. And <laughs> <laughs> well, did you get to experience this house? I always ask guests, actually, the houses they've designed. Do they, um, if, you've had, if you had the opportunity to stay and, and feel what it was like to live in the place? Well, one of the advantages of uh, a construction site that lasted uh, two years <laughs> is that in the end you you kind of really have the opportunity of um, spending a lot of time in it because as I mentioned I was doing the I was mm -hmm. con in, in the construction site very often and of course there are some decisions that you also take while being on construction site and that is something that I do appreciate um, that we always have that opportunity of adapting throughout the construction. Yeah. What happened here then? Was what 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 adaptations did you make through being on site? So I think that um, for sure the the pavement choice was something that was decided uh, on site. 
But I also think that, for example, the stair, which is a little bit of a protagonist uh, in that space, um, didn't used to be exactly like that. But somehow you felt like, ah, even in this corridor, which is not really a corridor, I could actually sit and read. So we decided to put this small bench under the the stair and kind of create another space. Uh, as you said, the spaces in the end are rather shallow and there's not one big living room. It's rather like a lot of smaller spaces that we created by breaking down um, the Pentagon. And that space you're talking about with creating, you created a little kind of day bed, kind of sofa bench underneath the open tread stair. Um, I mean, you can see in plan that actually that's probably got one of the best views because if you're sitting there, you kind of cut through the courtyard and out to the sea. Is that something you maybe appreciated through being there on site and seeing that view? Yeah, exactly. And not only the the sea views, but also I have to say that one of, we like this kind of crossed views inside the house, you know, that you mm. always have a, a sense of uh, somebody coming up and you see them and there's some kind of visual connection between all the ground floor open space. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one of the beauties of a courtyard house. It's, def- it's my, I think I've said it before on this podcast, but it's my dream kind of typology for a home would be to have a house with a courtyard kind of roman style almost you don't even need windows on the outside if you've got a great courtyard um but yes you've got these narrow spaces that you can look across and see each other which is perfect for a holiday home as well and the the way you live in the place i'd be really interested to know how the occupants have furnished the place as well because the photographs you have it's very minimal it's obviously hasn't been bought yet um, but did you have kind of preset ideas yourself? Because they're quite strange shapes, some of these rooms. The, you know, they're long and thin, the, the living room spaces. Um, did you have any expectations in, or designs yourselves of, of how this would be furnished? I mean, we obviously drew in the furniture to kind of make sure that you could uh, lay it out. Um, I think in general, it's it's a plan that needs to be furnished in a quite a freestanding object uh, way. But it's true that um, in the end we created rather shallow spaces, but we wanted to somehow um, have those small um, intimate moments, even if the house is completely glazed and still has this openness and feeling of um, amplitude, but still that you feel a little bit like um, in, an, in, in, in a more smaller and uh, res- like co- um, constrained limits of space. And also mm-hmm. another thing is that the outer space for us are equally important as the inner space in a, in a summer house. So um, we think because we have, we have experienced ourselves uh, spending a lot of summers uh, in this area that basically you're always outdoor, you're eating outdoor, you're spending time with friends outdoor. So the inner space is just equally important or even less important than the, than the patio, the swimming pool, mm. the terrace in the front and so on. I can imagine that the patio would be a place where you'd have a big table for outside dining set up permanently because it's right there in, in the heart of the house. Um, and what, what do you think it's like living in this house or staying in this house in terms of how it feels to, to be there? So I, I think it's a, uh, it has a very nice domestic scale. Um, as I said, it's, it's 
broken down into spaces that feel always like like wide enough but narrow enough like the mm. the dining room fits perfectly for the amount of people we were planning for and the instead of having like a spectacular um living room it's rather like a a TV space because we actually think that most of the social time you will spend outdoor. This is rather like a place where you're reading or watching TV. And what we also like is that this double height gives um, amplitude also in the other direction, no? in the vertical direction. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a very bright and kind of useful house. I don't know how to say it. Like it has a, a scale that you you don't get lost in its, it has 360 square meters, but I would say it doesn't feel ever too large um, when you're in a room. That's true. It's quite, it's quite a big house, isn't it? In terms of square meterage, but it doesn't look, doesn't look that way. Um, there's almost something quite traditional about it as well of the courtyard and the different heights buildings, almost like a little hilltop village um, kind of feel, which does make it feel um, very domestic. Um, have you, you mentioned about how you used um, physical models when you were developing this design. Was that your kind of main avenue? What and, and how else did, did you use any sort of digital tools or were you hand drawing? How, how do you how do you work as a studio to develop a design like this? So um, in in the beginning, we were using a lot a lot of physical models, doing a lot of tests in, in paper and uh, different materials. Mm. We have always used a lot of 3D models and renderings. And to be honest, I think we are slowly moving away from the physical model, which somehow we struggle with because of this romantic idea of the architect <laughs> and the, the working with your hands and so on. But um, somehow we have, we have evolved to a very like um, strong uh, BIM software where we we are really rendering a lot of the things and looking a lot into details. It becomes almost a bit overwhelming because when you have a such a precise 3D model and you can see every single detail and mistake and corner, you, you get a little bit like overwhelmed by that. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe it was almost good that at the time we didn't have those tools. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? I mean, if you're doing BIM and you're doing CAD, it's, you work into such a level of accuracy that is more accurate than the builder's going to be. Exactly. working to so you're finding problems that probably don't exist um which do you think there's an advantage here of it being more freeform i suppose because you're it is like a sculpture this house isn't it i mean the way you've created it, it very much shows that you've probably been working with models yeah i i think it is very much thought um from the outside as an object as we said in the beginning we had um a little bit more this way of working but i would say also we have never really had again this opportunity i would say of having a plot where it was large enough to to be able to create this uh, movements and this uh, breaking down and so often you have like smaller plots where you're so you're already maxing out the area you can basically not do any cutout because you don't have space for it. So it was a very unique opportunity that um, I don't think it has ever happened again to us. Yeah. Well, as I learned at the beginning of the episode, this is not a recent project. This is a much earlier one. So you've, you've done a lot of houses since and had a lot of opportunities for further experimentation. 
um what where are you going to next like what have you got other kind of geometries that you want to be exploring or is is it as you said at the, at the beginning of the interview trying to move more away from formal uh shapes and, and arc, that type of architecture what what's what are you looking to explore next well we 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 really enjoy anyway this geometrical um, experimentation and to be honest we would love to also do something that would not be necessarily housing <laughs> so for example um, we do a lot of competitions involving public uh, buildings or museums and so on and there we actually do take the the freedom of experimenting with other shapes for example we love circles it's something that is extremely hard to to translate into a small villa because of course it creates a lot of um, hard to use spaces and also to try and convince your client of doing that is of course a massive challenge and um, so far we have managed to get some curves in there but not really working with circles as such which i hope uh, we get to do someday so I've not heard that. But I mean, it's quite common for people doing a lot of residential architecture and saying they want to move more into public realm and bigger buildings. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say it's because because houses pre- uh, present kind of geometrical limitations. It's a very interesting um, way of looking at it. Is that is that what it feels like? Do you, I sense maybe with your practice, there's this sort of burning energy of you've got geometries and <laughs> kind of mathematical things in your minds that need need exploring in built form but you can't do those on houses is that right well for example in sweden we have um we're working a lot with developers so again we don't know the final client we're more mm, mm-hmm. creating um compounds of houses we also do have some final clients where we're doing uh, uh refurbishments and so on but in that sense they are very practical no? i mean anything that creates more cost or uh, mm. functional waste of space uh, could be an issue. Also, the, the price per square meter in in Sweden is like a massive driving force when it comes to mm-hmm. selling. In, in Spain, I think that our restriction has been rather the size of plots. We are almost always like going to the limit, maxing out because um, people want to make the most out of what they have invested in the in the land so in that sense it does create also geometric limitations that uh, we don't have um, enough space to maybe create more broken down or expansive shapes and you end up working a bit like in a compact uh, mm-hmm. way however it has had a lot of advantages in the sense that we have started investigating other ways of making houses interesting rather with materiality, uh, textures and all these things, which we're also very happy that we introduced because we we always had a little bit that um, need. I mean, we, we have always been massive fans of uh, Herzog de Meron precisely because it feels like every project they do, they, they try to do something different. And that mm-hmm. is something that we also sometimes like, why, why not repeat just like, we just want to change for the for the sake of changing and for, yeah. for learning something through this process. Yeah, there's definitely a desire there for you. You want to be challenged and testing new things. Um, have you got, what have you got in development at the moment that's maybe exciting you the most in terms of, that's at design stage? So right now we have under construction uh, 
three villas and um, I'm very happy with uh, all of them. Of course, they belong more. In a way, you see similarities when you're developing things in, in, in a period of your um, work. But um, they are also quite different in their own way. Also very interesting when it comes to materials and different techniques that we had not used previously. Mm -hmm. And we're also uh, doing bigger projects, but that have not started uh, construction. And we, we also want to have a bit the chance of using sustainable materials such as like cork uh, mm -hmm. for insulation or uh, wood and wooden structures, which we have a lot of experience in Sweden, but we have not had yet in Spain. And all those things are a bit uh, challenging and, and exciting for us right now. But also kind of a real opportunity for you because you're exploring typologies in very different locations and very different contexts. I imagine that enables you to apply some of the lessons learned from both in, in each country almost and, and other countries. Definitely. I mean, I think it's it's uh, something that is very unique because um, the two countries operate extremely different, much more than you would expect. Um, the mm. difference between Scandinavia and South European construction is still like massive. And both things have their advantages and disadvantages. Um, as I mentioned before, we had both been working in Switzerland. So we do appreciate that in the South of Europe, you still have a bit that kind of um, the architect as, as this custom-made designer that can really do more um, like working with concrete and, and getting things done a bit like how you draw them and not so industrialized. But of mm -hmm. course, um, we learn a lot about uh, how Scandinavia is moving into this kind of industrialization and prefabrication. And it also has some very interesting lessons about how you can improve the final quality of uh, sustainability, quality of construction. I mean, when you do something in the factory, obviously, it's the control of, of execution is so good that mm. it's hard to compete with that. Do you get any weird commissions of somebody that has a plot on a Balearic island that wants a Scandinavian house or somebody that in Sweden that wants a Menorca-style beach house? It's funny you mentioned that because <laughs> actually we do have a Scandinavian client who reached out to us uh, asking for a bit of this Mediterranean touch that, <laughs> mm -hmm. that we have. So yes, um, we even had like people reaching out from England asking for something we had done in, in Spain because maybe they, they find it different and unique and mm. inspiring in some way. Yeah. Um, okay, Alicia, I'm going to ask you, there's three questions now that I ask um, all of my guests. And the first one is, what is the one thing that really annoys you in your home? Okay, so uh, I would say one of them was this uh, materiality that we couldn't uh, manage to get it all the way through as radical as we wanted it to be. Um, and one thing that I think was... I'm not sure if it was a mistake or not, I'm still debating, but because we had these restrictions in wanting to make this stepping volumes, the truth is that when you're upstairs in the master bedroom, and we wanted so badly to block the view from the hotel that of course we also mm. blocked the view from the sea. So, <laughs> 
so you, you if you step out you to the terrace you do get that view but it was a bit like what is it is it better to just see uh, the hotel with the sea or to, or or the opposite so maybe that was i'm not sure if that was the right decision or not it's still yeah and this, so this is on Villa Patio. Yeah. Um, these, and what about, where do you live? Do you live in, are you based in Barcelona? We're based in Barcelona um, and Madrid. We're basically traveling between those two cities, yeah. And if I can ask you then on, on your home, so where you live, what, what's the one thing that really annoys you about your own home? Well, to be, to be absolutely honest, right now we have taken a bit of this like uh, nomad uh, <laughs> life philosophy. So we're changing between different rental houses all the time. <laughs> but um, if I would say what I do appreciate most in a house is the brightness. I need a lot of light because I'm mm -hmm. working uh, a lot of hours from home and I personally love open spaces. I know there's people who have a bit of like a vertigo feeling with uh, no divisions and so on. But if you would ask me, um, I would live in one big open space. Really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then if you could describe one house that you have visited that's really inspired you and tell me why. Yes. Yeah, so um, I have thought about it uh, many times later. Um, I think that I had this um, friend in, in childhood that uh, her her dad was actually a kind of a well-known architect in Barcelona. And I had been to her house like several times after uh, school or whatever. And I, I, I think that was a house that really impacted me throughout. Uh, maybe it even helped me decide that I really wanted to pursue architecture. Um, it was very unique in, the, in, in, in how it kind of made a very scenographic uh, moments like you would cross this bridge over the pool to enter the house and then you had like this massive pivoting wooden door and and suddenly like a, a super long staircase with this red carpet and everything was like really thought on how you would see things and then mm -hmm. how you experienced like I don't know, like sunken bathtubs or passing through bathrooms. It was something that I had not, I had not been to houses like that before. And I think that I still remember that house very intensely, even if it was like 30 years ago, I was there for the last time. So it sounds amazing. Is, it, is, it, is this the kind of house that would have been published at the time? So I'm not sure if it was published because it was their private house. It could be that they didn't want it to be published. Of course, he has, uh, the architect had a lot of published um, villas for sure. But um, yes, it was really amazing in how it was uh, just. Mm -hmm. Who was the architect? Tournet Sunye, he was called. Okay. He and then passed if you could... away over yeah. Right. And then if you could choose any designer to design you a new home, who would you choose? So, of course, there are so many amazing designers that that is a really hard question to answer. <laughs> but um, lately, I have to say, we are very, very uh, influenced and looking a lot at, into Mexican architects. We just love this kind of rawness, openness, and like, we love it and the textures and all of that. Mm -hmm. So I think that... I, I could almost uh, go with one of these uh, Matias Peredo or Perez Paredes or Studio Max that I'm so in love with. Um, 
Having said that, I, I also really, really like um, some of this uh, more rough middle European architects like uh, Office or Brandluber or Anne Holtrop. I love also this kind of um, big, as I said, no, like big, open, raw uh, yeah. architecture. <laughs> if I could put you on the spot then and you, you have to pick one, you're going to commission them and they're going to design you a home, who would it be? Maybe, maybe, maybe Matthias Peredo I would go for, but okay. uh, maybe tomorrow I answer a different question. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, well, Alicia, thank you very much for joining me. And I mean, congratulations on on your portfolio generally, but also on Villa Patti. I think it's a really interesting uh, design, the way it's been devised and developed. Um, and yeah, thank you for giving the time to, to talk to me about it. Thank you so much for having us. It was really great talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you would like to find out more about Nomo Studio and about Villa Patio, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com and try out the Instagram page to see the work of all my guests. If you'd like to escape on another audio journey to a home by the sea, you might like to listen to episode 18 with Alexi Hautamaki, where we discuss Project O, a remote off-grid cabin in Finland's Archipelago National Park. Not quite the same kind of sea as the Mediterranean, but pretty spectacular nonetheless. To listen to the episode, visit the episode page on the website. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.